welcome to the Amateur of Life and Death podcast. I'm Luke Plimmer. And I'm Laura East. And each episode takes a look at a different aspect of the wonderful world of amateur theatre and features an amateur theatre maker talking about their theatrical life, theatrical loves and the times when they've died on stage. Our backstage pass holder, John O'Neill, also takes a look behind the scenes at the Crescent Theatre Birmingham to discover more about what goes into making a great amateur production. Today's episode explores the witty and wonderful work of Oscar Wilde, whose satirical theatrical masterpieces continue to delight audiences more than 100 years after his death. We'll be interviewing Alan Bull, actor, stage manager and production manager, to find out about his life and loves in amateur theatre and his experience of performing Wilde's plays. And John will be going behind the scenes to talk to the Crescent's marketing manager, Rob Laird, about the challenges and rewards of marketing amateur productions. Let's hear Luke in discussion with Alan Bull. So, actor, stage manager, production manager, Alan, we're very excited to have you on the podcast. Thank you so much for coming on. So, tell us about your first love. You want the first love of theatre, presumably, and yes. not... Yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes, um, I think I can go right back. The What first introduced me to theatre when I was still at junior school. Um, I doing about, I don't know, eight or nine. Wow. So, that's nearly 70 years ago. Um, we were taken to a, a play at the old Kidderminster Playhouse and um, even now I can remember the gist of what it was about, which, which must mean that it made a real impression on me. It was about a man who um, wanted to kill time. He hated clocks, watches, schedules, all the rest. Um, so he did his very best. Of course, it didn't work out and the conclusion was that he had to go back to using them again. Um, so. Not all that thrilling, but as I say, it stuck with me for, for so long. So I think that was the first, probably the first uh, live theatre I'd seen. Wow. And I've been going and watching live theatre ever since, really. So in all that time, you must have experienced a lot of theatre. So what's been the love of your theatrical life? Um, it's not possible really to give you just one thing. It's been very much an accumulation over the course of time, I suppose. A few things that sort of stand out, and I was thinking about this, I thought it was the sort of thing I'd probably be asked. Um, I saw Kenneth Branagh as Henry V when he was a very young man at Stratford, and I think that was his yeah. breakthrough production. Uh, that, sta that stands out. Much more recently, um, I saw a semi-staged version of Sweeney Todd at the Coliseum, and that was Bryn Turfell and um, Emma Thompson. And I can claim that Emma Thompson actually climbed over my knees on her way to the stage. <laughs> and that inevitably does stand out. Um, uh, but all, all sorts of things, really. Um, another love that's developed over recent years is um, uh, is the smaller stuff, the fringe theatres, the, the studio theatre stuff. I loved going to the Trafalgar 2 studio, the little studio, no longer there sadly, they've reconverted the what used to be the Whitehall Theatre back into a theatre. But Fringe now is something, and uh, studio stuff is I think probably my, uh, my particular love at the moment. So is there anything that you yourself have been involved in, acted in, or been a stage manager for yourself that you've loved? Um, yes, I think among the roles that I've played, I thoroughly enjoyed being Ragano the Baker in Serrano de Bergerac. It's the first time I ever wore tights on stage, <laughs> actually. <laughs> um, 
And um, I also love the little cameo that I did in The Lady in the Van, where I played Miss Shepherd's older brother. And old enough though I am, I had to age about another 15 years to play that role. And th that, was, uh, that was good fun. Um, and I really I think I've enjoyed all my acting roles, uh, both the, um, the Oscar Wildes and the, the Jane Austens that I've done, and also the more recent stuff, such as um, Bennett and uh, the stage version of Vicar of Dibley that we did a couple of years ago. Um, as far as stage managing is concerned, maybe the highlight was Oliver. Um, I think the first time I met you, actually. Yeah, my first show here. Yeah, yeah. Um, that was the first full, the first main stage musical I'd done. So it was a challenge, but it was a, it was a challenge that I, I really enjoyed meeting. And there have been something like thirty-five shows that I've stage managed now. So there have been quite a few highlights. Um, I'm actually looking at Liz and thinking Kinder Transport, which was a, a great uh, play, and therefore one that. Uh, you could stage manage and you could sit and call the show time after time and you still were enjoying the play. Enjoy is perhaps not quite the wor right word for that, but it was, it was such a worthwhile sort of a piece of theatre. And I think that, from, certainly from the point of um, running shows as a stage manager, that's very important. Very, very recently, I enjoyed Pittman Painters uh, every time, every performance, because, again, thoroughly good play, and it also helps when you've got really nice people in the cast, which on that occasion, as indeed on most occasions, uh, I, I've been fortunate enough to have. So tell us about the one that got away. Um, yeah, Judas Kiss. I really wanted to play the hotel manager in Judas Kiss. Um, and there was just one person in the theatre who I hoped would not read for it, it's our former chairman, a Scotsman of exactly the right age, exactly the right description, but he did read for it. And his Scottish accent was even better than mine. <laughs> <laughs> and also he was the right age. I was probably 10 or 15 years older than the specified age. So I didn't get that. And I was disappointed because uh, that's a role which I would have really liked to do. Um, otherwise, I don't think there's really been a role that I've, that I've missed. And as far as stage managing is concerned, I think I've really been able to do just about all of the shows that, uh, that I felt I wanted to do. Not to mention quite a few that I didn't particularly. <laughs> okay, so Judas Kiss coincidentally is written by David Hare and that's about Oscar Wilde. So since that links into the episode, what about that play specifically drew you to it that made you want to be a part of it? Um, well, I think it was, um, it, it was the particular character that I thought would, would be Right, it was about the right size of, of role for me. Um, it wasn't impossibly large. Um, the Oscar Wilde link, of course, is that it describes uh, Wilde both before and after his time in Reading Jail. Um, and so Wilde having a really good time and Wilde in his twilight um, at, at, towards the end of his life. Um, so it's it, it was just... It was a role that I, I thought I would like to play, a play that I thought I would like to be in. It, didn't, it wasn't because it was about Oscar Wilde specifically. I've I'm, I'm not, I'm not got a fixation about Oscar Wilde, as it were. <laughs> I hasten to add. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. yeah. So tell us about a time when you died on stage. Oh, God. Uh, 
Yes, Father Christmas. Um, <laughs> I, was, I was in the Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe and I was playing um, the professor, but I had one small scene, a cameo, as Father Christmas, and I had to give presents, or not presents, um, gifts to the, the three children, which would help them to um, conquer the White Queen and all the, the evil and so on. So I handed um, Peter his sword and his shield, and I handed Susan her uh, bow and arrow and her hunting horn, and then I was supposed to give little Lucy, let me try and get the phrase right, of the, um, the juice of the fire flowers of the, mountain, of the mountains of the sun in a little bottle. Um, and uh, one performance, I went to hand that to her and it wasn't in for Santa's sack, and I couldn't find it anywhere. With the benefit of hindsight, I could have just mimed handing it to her. What I actually did was rummage around in the sack for what felt like about half an hour. Um, and then I said something totally stupid like, well, I know it was in here when I set off. Those silly elves must have taken it out again. By which stage the audience had obviously clocked that things were going haywire. Um, meanwhile, the actor playing Peter um, had lost it completely. He turned his back on the audience. His shoulders were going up and down. <laughs> And um, so I thought, well, I'd better get off. So I, I said what I think was my last line, turned to go, and little Lucy was supposed to give me a peck on the cheek as I went. I got about three paces towards upstage, and suddenly she said in a great loud voice, I haven't kissed you yet, <laughs> at which point the whole audience just went. But it is the only time in my acting career that I've had a personal ah. ovation as I left the stage. <laughs> so, yeah, that was a you sort know what? of... That you was made a, it glorious. It was a comedy <laughs> death. Thank goodness it wasn't a serious play. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, so, as we said a moment ago, this episode is specifically about Oscar Wilde plays. So, yeah. tell us about your experiences of performing in Oscar Wilde plays. What have you particularly enjoyed about performing his work? Oh, right, well, it's the third Oscar Wilde that I will have done here in my, what, 12 years at the theatre. Um, all of them tours. Um, and I, the first one, in fact, was my first tour. Mm. And I suppose part of my love for, the, for his plays comes from the fact that that was my first experience of um, not only of touring acting, but in fact of, of acting uh, at all since I was a youngster. Um, and I had an absolutely super role as the Earl of Caversham. Um, and although it was in terms of um, coping with things like the weather and all the rest of it, it was a bit hairy. Um, I just, I, I found that it worked. I found that uh, Victorian costume suits me, that that sort of era suits me. I've got the right sort of look for it. Um, and so, and of course, Wilde's characters and Wilde's... Um, language and so on, there, there are so many notable quotes from Wilde and uh, his comedy is, um, you can see a Wilde play over and over and you still pick up something that you hadn't previously seen. You can be in the thing and you're halfway through the run, you can suddenly realise that for the first time you, you spot a line which you hadn't really clocked as being particularly funny yeah. before. Um, but yeah, it's... Uh, it's a, matter, a combination of period stuff and, uh, and the, man, the way the man writes. That was An Ideal Husband. Okay. Um, and then I went on to play Canon Chasuble in The Importance of Being Earnest, 
and I'm now um, back in the House of Lords as Lord Augustus Morton in uh, Lady Windermere's fan. Uh, you mentioned a moment ago uh, you were talking about like his writing and his wit. Do you have a favourite Oscar Wilde line or saying or witticism? Um, I think the one that I, I thought was hilarious when I first heard it many years ago is Lady Bracknell. Um, Jack Worthing's told her that he's lost his, both his parents. And I'm going to quote this. To lose one parent, Mr Worthing, may be regarded as a misfortune. To lose both looks like carelessness. <laughs> <laughs> and then my, I think my favourite from our current production of uh, Lady Windermere is uh, Lord Darlington, who says... Um, I couldn't help it. I can resist everything except temptation. <laughs> and God, that's me as well. <laughs> so, yes, I mean, there are so many, but I just plucked those two out as uh, examples. So Lady Windmere's Fan is the Crescent Theatre's touring production yeah. this year. So tell us about your experience of the Crescent Tour. What do you particularly enjoy about outdoor theatre? I've done, this will be my sixth, so I must enjoy something. Um, I think it's a challenge. It's, it's entirely different in many ways because not only have you got to do all the things that you do on any um, performance, such as remembering your lines, remembering where you're supposed to be on stage, getting your entrances right, that sort of thing, but you have to adjust as you go along because all the venues are different. You have to cope with weather conditions. You have to cope with... Um, wildlife um, and with things overhead such as aeroplanes yeah. um, you also um, and, and you have to go on with it if your audience stay you've got to carry on even if the wind sure. is whistling or the rain is pouring down uh, so there's, there's the challenge to it um, but I think performing in different venues is is good fun yeah. Yeah, and I would say really to any actor if you haven't done a tour at least go and do one and, and try it out yeah. So you've both acted in and stage managed a number of Crescent touring productions. So what are the particular challenges of stage managing a tour? Right. I haven't actually stage managed a tour, but I have done work backstage with um, our regular tour stage manager. Um, the uh, challenges there are basically getting, the, getting set up. Um, you are going to have to... Um, try and get the staging somewhere where at least there are possible entrances and exits and uh, and the like. Um, you've got to have enough about you to be able to find um, power supplies and hook up with it. You have to deal with the different management um, styles of the different venues you go to, some of whom are inevitably um, easier to deal with than others. Um, and uh, you've also got to cope again with, with things like weather conditions, um, the set getting blown over and you've got to nip on stage and put it back together and that sort of thing. Uh, so again, yes, it's, it's a different challenge from running a show in the theatre. So as the head of section for stage management at the Crescent, what do you think are the qualities that somebody needs to be a good stage manager? What advice would you give anybody interested maybe in getting into this area of amateur theatre? Right, well, the, uh, the qualities... Um, Let's give you a couple of rather sort of hackneyed quotes. Keep okay. calm and carry on <laughs> and don't panic. <laughs> you really have got to be calm. You've also got to be able to organise both yourself and other people. Uh, you've got to be able to be sufficiently authoritative, if that's a word, authoritative, to um, 
ensure that people will accept your instruction and will do what's required. On the other hand, you've got to be a good people person, if you possibly can, so that you can do this with goodwill uh, rather than being authoritarian and risking putting people's backs up. Yeah. Um, you've also got to be able to write legibly if you're writing up the book, because if a, another stage manager has to take over from you, and they can't read what you've written, and believe you me, it's happened to me, um, uh, then there's a problem. But yeah, I mean, that's a little bit on the side, really. As to advice for getting into stage management, um, you need really to do uh, backstage work, um, ASM, crew, uh, be willing to take your time. If you've never done anything of this sort before, don't expect to ASM one show and then be able to run a show. Mm. There's rather more to it than you might imagine. And another aspect which I haven't mentioned, which is vital, is that the stage manager is the uh, safety officer for the show. And one of the big jobs you've got to do is risk assessment. Mm. You've also got to be willing, if you must, to say either to the director, that is not safe, or to the set designer, the set is not safe. Um, and ultimately, it's up to you to make sure that, uh, that accidents that can be avoided are avoided. Mm. You've also been the production manager on a number of amateur productions at the <coughs> Crescent Theatre. So tell us what that role involves and why it's important? Uh, yeah, it's a sort of overall um, coordinating role, supervisory role, if you like. Um, as long as everything's going to plan, the production manager has precious little to do. You have two meetings to run, the or three, the, um, the, the pre-production meeting and the progress meeting and then a, a post-production sort of wash-up after the event. Um, but otherwise, what you're doing it's just in ensuring quietly and sort of in the background that all the various sections who are preparing for the show um, are up to speed. You're also a troubleshooter if there should be any difficulty um, and you can be a shoulder to cry on. Um, uh, it may be, for example, that one, of the, uh, one part of the show just isn't coming together um, and if the people know that you're the production manager and that you will listen to them, they'll come and talk to you and you can usually do something about it. And uh, I, you're responsible to the head of production and therefore to the board for making sure that the whole show comes together and, and happens. Uh, you've mentioned ASMing a couple of times for the people listening who aren't techies, like myself. What does ASM oh, I'm sorry, for? yes. Assistant stage manager. Right. Um, we also occasionally on a complicated show might have a deputy stage manager, a DSM as well. Alan, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's been a delight to talk to you and it's been really insightful as well. So thank you very much. Well, thank you. And that was Luke talking to Crescent member Alan Bull. Now our backstage pass holder John has been talking to Crescent's marketing manager Rob about the delights of marketing amateur productions. John? Thanks, Laura. Hello, listeners and welcome to this episode's Backstage Pass, where we are an outdoors backstage pass, having come to sample the delights of Canal Side Birmingham. In this episode's Backstage Pass, we're taking a look behind the glossy, high contrast, cork-popping world of marketing. Joining me today to make everything clear is Rob Laird. Rob, hi, and welcome to the Amateur of Life and Death podcast. Hi, John. Thank you very much for having me. You're welcome. Rob, can you tell us what your role is with the Crescent Theatre and how you ended up doing this role? 
Yeah, of course. Um, I'm a member of the board of the Crescent Theatre, and I'm the marketing manager for the for the theatre. I've been in the role for about six or seven months, or there thereabouts. And how have you seen the channels and strategies for marketing change over the years? It's a tricky thing because, again, you're talking about the kind of marketing that is fitting for the play itself. It's mm. what we kind of keep coming back to is marketing as an idea or publicity as an idea is to get the word out there, but to get the word out in the right direction. And, of course, social media is the catch-all term for so many different ideas or so many different ways to reach out into the world. And it is the best way to reach the highest number of people, but it's not always necessarily the people who are not... I'll go back a sec. It's not necessarily always the particular audience for that production. So, yeah. yes, digital outreach, social media outreach is that wide net that I've talked about, but it still needs to be directed in order to find... Well, to find the audience, really. Yeah. To find the audience you actually think and will is, be... is that audience different for each different show? Yeah, it's, certainly. Some certainly. people are more receptive to different sort of settings, different sort of genres. Yeah, that's absolutely true. And it's, it's, a, little, it's a little reductive to say that older people, and again, that's a terrible catch-all term, but are maybe less easy to be caught in the social media net mm. because it's not necessarily true facebook of course is is something that is used by people of all ages mm. but they might not be as receptive to it that way so there is still a real place for what we'd have to call the more traditional outreach where we are still talking about leaflets and what's on magazine yeah and um, print media print media as a whole but we are still trying to find a way to make sure that that isn't just a leaflet that gets handed out and then vanishes into the ether yeah. there is still a degree of targeting for that mm. I will say that social media is the more common version of the outreach and of course social media itself is not one thing anymore it's, it's it absolutely used to just not. be one site didn't it Facebook yeah um, it's absolutely not and and it's not just advert it's not just a matter of putting out a poster on, a, on an email of course I don't mean to, to to be reductive for it but you can't just send out an email and say for example Lady Windermere's fan is on soon that's great as far as that goes that that tells people great those are the dates that i need for my diary if i'm already interested in it but what we try to do now is to f to to pass the interest out mm. rather than pass the information out it's all well and good to say lady windermere's fan starts on x there's your date what you actually want is the audience to be aware of the production earlier interested in the production earlier and connected mm. to it in some way yeah. which is as you were saying it's not just sending out the facebook invite so that people are aware of it yeah. we're trying to be more proactive in making sure that the cast are using instagram for example we have the instagram takeover where they actually try to humanize the play a little bit more and to hook the audience in a different way yeah so you're not just 
telling them the dates and the venue. Yeah. You're, you're telling yeah. them a lot more about what the production is, how it's shaping up. That's exactly involved. right. That's exactly right. It's a difference between it's a difference between publicising an event, which is making which is standing on a street corner and shouting, This play will start on this date. It's the different aspect of the the role is to actually find a way to talk to the potential audience and bring them in, mm. make them more emotionally involved, maybe. Yeah, I think or maybe that's a good way of, of putting it, is, is to get that emotional involvement with the piece, yeah. with the audience. Yeah, yeah. That, that's certainly... It's certainly a different kind of strategy. And it's certainly much more... Uh, certainly much more interesting and it's certainly much more involving and much more effective. Yeah. Would you say that is the most effective way to, to promote a show at the moment is to get that emotional involvement, to, to make people feel as part of the, the, the story of the production? Well, yes, to an extent, but in practical terms, what we're actually thinking more about is the demographic of what that play or the, demo, the, the demographic that production would interest. Yeah. And it's, it's, a, it's kind of a, an example would be, I, I was in a production of The Pittman Painters uh, about a month ago now, and the play concerns a group of men in the 1930s, but the timing doesn't really matter in this, ex this uh, example but who actually try to study art, who, mm. who go through a, a, an art course. And just as a, an attempt to find a market, I found art courses in Birmingham and the Midlands and just reached out to them to let them be aware that, A, the play was on. We have no idea if those, if members of those those art groups had ever stepped foot in the Crescent before. Yeah. They were maybe not on our mailing list. They'd certainly never seen a leaflet with uh, the season's details on it. They maybe had never heard the Crescent existed. But just that simple reach to their, uh, to chap on their door and say, there is a play that you might be interested in. You lose nothing by doing it, but it's much more direct. It's actually much yeah. more effective to try to find the door to knock on and there's a hook for those people because yeah. obviously they have an yeah. interest it, in, in art and that play was a, a wonderful voyage through what is art and, and the, the history of art to a degree yeah and, and what the yeah. concept of art is to the human mind and it, it was, was fascinating it was a really successful play and i say that with a bit of um bit of ego since i was in it but it was mm. a, it was a successful play in that regard mm. but it did explore things that I could really sell. Mm. It was something that I could find an audience for and say, this might be for you. You've never, you might never have heard of us before, but this could be for you. Yeah. And on a similar note, I was in a play that was by an Irish playwright um, a while ago, and I did a similar thing where I got in touch with the Irish societies yeah. in Birmingham because yeah. it's actually a big... Irish population in Birmingham mm -hmm. and we, we we did manage to get um, that promoted within Irish uh, associations and we got some we got some people coming because of that and I was in a play that a Chekhov play mm. 
Um, and so I wrote to the universities, the, the Russian-speaking departments. Yeah. Well, and, some of, and some of them did turn up. Mm. Um, so it is about finding that audience and do, yeah. doing yeah. that outreach piece. Yeah, that, that, that's exactly right. And you talked to the ver about a very important demographic there is that we can reach out to students who are maybe interested in theatre as what they're studying or what they're interested in. But uh, there's a different kind of culture there about maybe seeing theatre. But there's also, as you say, maybe Russian-speaking students or Russian-studying students mm. who'd be interested in a play written by a Russian playwright. It, it's almost as simple as that. Mm. And it's, it, it's not a simple thing to do, but it is a matter of saying that we've got product A, who's interested in product A, an entire group of people might be, maybe only four of them actually buy a ticket, mm. but that might be four people that you've never, have never come to exactly. a play before. And that might be four people who then start coming, exactly. join your loyal following. And so that, that's it's exactly, about that, that's it's exactly about it. that clear-eyed strategy, isn't it? Um, that, that's certainly what we're, what we're trying to get more into is, and, and, and again, earlier, earlier mm. the better try to get people hooked so yeah. that they put a date in their diary for three weeks time three months time and rob there may be some listeners out there who are involved with amateur theater but perhaps don't think much about promotion or marketing what tips would you give where should they start uh, how do you recognize a successful marketing outcome the second question is easier to answer first and that's that is the answer to it all which is an audience yeah. an increased audience number in stark terms, it's why we do it. We are, we are in the amateur theatre world, putting on plays for audiences. And if it, if it was a group that just has never thought about marketing before, where should they start? I think you've got to start with the fact that you have a community. If the theatre is a dozen people, or if it's 300 people, there are still people there who can make sure that the that they are a, a speaker they are a um they are a what's the word i can't remember it's a tannoy say yeah. to announce the fact that something does exist what what i would want to be able to say to every single member of the crescent is if you tell 10 people and tell those 10 people to tell 10 people you will reach out i don't i don't necessarily think that there's a relaxed aspect to it where you just sort of come to the theatre, you work in a play and then you go into the next one because everybody's always giving their all but they're giving their all maybe to the technical aspect of it or to the to, to the acting aspect of it but if everybody remembers that they are an ambassador for the group that they are a member of and that if every member knows that it is their responsibility to keep the theatre that they are a member of, the Crescent, of course, at our example, but every single person who is a member of the Crescent is responsible for the Crescent's success and are just as responsible for bringing in as an, an audience as they are for hanging a light, for sewing a costume, for, for learning a line. Mm. So it's that collective responsibility. It is a collective responsibility. It, it, I, my job is to come up with a strategy to reach out to people, but I also know that I need to rely 
on every single member to do their part. Mm. And if every member does their part, which I do believe that they do, but it's important to remember, we will reach people. Yeah. We will reach people. And if you're a theatre that hasn't got a budget, really, for marketing, is it just get the social media accounts, get some leaflets printed at least? or? Yeah, but it is, again, targeted. If you're talking about the, the bare bones of a budget being at stake, then... And we have a budget, of course. Mm. We have a slightly larger budget than some places, I'm sure. But we don't want to waste it by just printing a leaflet that will go nowhere. Exactly. But yeah, social media is certainly the the most cost-effective way. And it is that thing where if you like it, if you like the image, if you like the story, if you like the possibility of going to see that production, share it on. Uh, knock on the door next door. Or remember that your friend mentioned that play before or was is interested in doing something new for a mm. weekend. They didn't want to go to the cinema. Maybe try something new for a weekend, but always be selling it. Yeah. Always be selling it. Yeah. That's the so idea. So it's, it's about encouraging as many people to take an active role. I would say that that's the, the foundational of it. But we've kind of strayed from marketing as a, as a subject. There's a difference between selling the theatre by members of the theatre and marketing a particular production to a potential audience. These mm. are very, very different things. Mm. And both rely on each other. But we should never, ever forget the, the foundational aspect of it, which is the membership. Yeah. And let people like me, unfortunately, have the, carry the can of trying to find somebody who is particular, or a group of people, a, a demographic, who would be interested in Shakespeare in Love, which mm. will be coming soon, or I Love You, You're Perfect, Now Change, which will be coming soon. I have to find the demographic for them, but I, I will always rely upon the foundation of the theatre. Yeah. Yeah, so no one person can do it all. It is that it is that group effort, that group activity. I, I, I think so, but th that's the difference between the marketing of a production and the publicising of the theatre. Yeah. They're two different aspects, but yeah. both rely very heavily on each other. Yeah, and um, this episode, Rob, we've talked a little bit about the Crescent Theatre's upcoming production of Oscar Wilde's Lady Windermere's Fan, which is on tour in July, and it's visiting some lovely outdoor venues, and we're outdoors today, in the Midlands, such as Castle Bromwich Hall Gardens, Birmingham Botanical Gardens, Blakesley Hall, Selly Manor, and Harvington Hall. And just as an example, uh, as a case study, what steps have you taken to market this production um, it's a tour, too, rather than an in-theatre show. How, how does that change things up? Well, you're, for Lady Windermere's fan, there's essentially two products to sell. We're talking about, again, start terms. We're talking about a production as a product. We have the studio show, and then we have uh, five, I believe, five venues that are... Mm. Uh, going to where the, the the performances will be placed. So we are advertising Lady Windermere's fan at the Crescent and Lady Windermere's fan at these places and Lady Windermere's fan. It becomes a bit of a tongue tongue twister. Lady Windermere's fan as a whole. So we are lucky in that we uh, as at the Crescent have a good reputation for our summer tours. They've been. It's an annual thing, isn't it? We should. Yeah, say. yeah. it's an annual annual event, it's part of our calendar, has been for quite some time. 
and we've built up a very very good relationship with these venues that we're playing at so we are able to rely upon our relationship with these venues to a great extent they are all venues which are established and have a built-in audience themselves yeah so we've got that loyalty factor and the we return have, yeah, audience. we do have that loyalty factor but again in practical terms we have their outreach as well yeah we can essentially piggyback on the top of their mm. outreach they they have all of our i've made sure myself that they're plastered in leaflets and posters yeah, yeah. and they have all of the digital outreach that yeah. we have the digital assets the, digi the digital assets absolutely, cool, yeah. absolutely right so they have everything that we have mm. but they have a very different pool so i suppose of it's, it's that collective team thing again so what what the what the tour unwittingly does is plugs into a wider network uh, that, that's exactly that's exactly right that's just and there's just power as, in the network that's exactly right it's a familiar play yeah it's oscar wilde comedy oscar, oscar wilde uh, comedy cell i think he's off on the maxim absolutely right and it's it's a perfect production for that kind of environment to be done outdoors mm. there's the there's the wonderful day out element yeah. to it yeah. that i think is a very good sell and it's that wonderful cabaret of outdoor theater where you you add in the fact it's outdoors and it adds an element to the performance because it it, it changes the performance up in some way it sort yeah. of gives it it gives yeah. it a dynamic all of its own yeah i've seen about i don't know how many three four five maybe over the years of the uh touring touring shows and it brings something very different to yeah. the production it has a life a special yeah, life all of its own just by way of being outdoors yeah there's a different energy in the yeah. cast there's a different energy in the audience mm who have come to see something different. Mm. And I won't specify any of the venues over the other because they're all magnificent places, but knowing that the the Botanical Gardens is involved... It's that it's, majestic backdrop as well, I suppose. That's, it is. That's another exciting element to So it. there is a degree of selling the event as well as the production, and I think that that really does well. Mm. On top of the fact, as I said earlier, we are also selling the studio production, which has the same built-in audience as as the rest of our productions do. Excellent. Well, I look forward to seeing it for sure. And yep. finally, regular listeners to the Amateur of Life and Death podcast will know that we like to channel our guests past a paparazzi-powered media <laughs> storm, straddling them across real and fake in an information overload on the superhighway of trivia. Oh, and you, yeah. Rob Laird, are no exception. So may I present to you Wilde or Riled. Oscar Wilde is famous for his witticisms and bon mots. Can you guess whether the lines that follow are real Oscar Wilde, in which case you say Wilde, or made up, in which case you say Riled? Okay. Your target is to get three of these right. All right. You ready? Okay. So it's wild or riled. Here's number one. <clears throat> Middle-aged women are like elephants. They invariably wear grey and they never forget. Is that wild or uh, riled? I will say riled. Correct. Oh. Correct. That's one point. <laughs> Here's your second. Wild or riled? <clears throat> Experience is merely the name men give to their mistakes. 
oh, I like that one. I'm gonna I'm gonna remember that one, and I'm gonna say Wild. Correct. Yes, it is. That's Oscar Wilde from the picture of Dorian Gray. It's two out of two so far. Here's your third line. I have great faith in fools. Self-confidence, my friends will call it. Wild uh, or riled? Um, riled. Correct. Oh. You're on a three roll. Three. That was actually Edgar Allan Poe. Well, now you're into bonus territory because <laughs> I've got five lines. I'm going to read them all. Okay. So number four. I never travel without my diary. One should always have something sensational to read on the train. Oh, I've read, I know that one. I, I came across that one somewhere. That's wild. Correct. That's from the importance of being earnest. And the fifth line, that's four out of four. It's quite an incredible run I'm expecting so far. a prize if I get five out of five. <clears throat> Number five is be yourself. Everybody else is already taken. Wild or riled? Uh, riled. Correct. Oh! Though often wow. attributed to Wilde, no evidence he ever wrote or said this line exists. <laughs> well, that's five out of five. Wow. That's I got feel, to put I feel you like up. I've accomplished something today. Yeah, that's <laughs> got to put you on at least joint top of the trivia leaderboard. It's very rare we get a, we get a, a full house. So, Rob, thank you so much thank for coming so much. on the podcast. It's been fascinating. Lovely. Thank you, Rob. Thank you very much. Oscar Wilde's life was a brilliant, tragic and complicated one. Aside from being eminently quotable, Wilde's legacy is vital in the spheres of theatre and literature, but also in terms of his impact on gay rights and culture. Born in Dublin to affluent parents, Wilde experienced a social advantage that gave him more than a taste of indulgent upper-class life to ridicule. He attended Oxford on a scholarship and was considered a genius. While at Oxford, Wilde began to write and earned an award for his first poem, Ravenna, published in 1878. After graduating from Oxford, Wilde moved to London and began to pursue his writing career, specifically writing poetry. He published his first book of poetry in 1881. While the collection was not an immediate success, it did help to establish Wilde in literary circles. In 1882, Wilde travelled to the United States and Canada, where he lectured for close to a year. After returning to England, Wilde continued to lecture on the aesthetic movement and write poetry. Wilde became a proponent of aestheticism, art for art's sake, he sought to promote the beauty of art rather than promote art for social or political gain. In 1884, Wilde married Constance Lloyd and the couple had two children. He continued to write, becoming a reviewer for the Pall Mall Gazette and editor for Woman's World. Over a period of seven years, between 1888 and 1895, Wilde produced his greatest literary achievements, including The Happy Prince and Other Tales, The Picture of Dorian Gray, and the stage plays Lady Windermere's Fan, A Woman of No Importance, an ideal husband, and the importance of being earnest. Wilde wrote a total of nine plays, of which seven were publicly produced in his lifetime. His most popular and successful work satirised Victorian England and wealthy Victorian society. His plays remorselessly take aim at social class, the institution of marriage, the prevalence of deceit and dishonesty in everyday affairs, and the concept of female independence, amongst other things. After the birth of Wilde's second child in 1886, strong rumours began to emerge of Wilde's homosexual relationships. Wilde spent increased time in London hotels and restaurants with his lovers, later forming an intimate friendship with Lord Alfred Douglas, known as Bosey. Wilde wrote perhaps his most famous play, The Importance of Being Earnest, in 1895, at the height of his fame and popularity. The production was received well by critics and has arguably become Wilde's most enduring and revived work. During the production's successful run at the St James's Theatre, 
Wilde became enthralled in a series of legal battles that ultimately led to his arrest and prosecution for the crime of gross indecency with men. Wilde had attempted to prosecute Lord Alfred Douglas's father, the Marquess of Queensbury, for libel after he had discovered and condemned their relationship. In his defence, Queensbury's lawyers produced evidence from several male prostitutes to support his accusations and clear the charges. Wilde was subsequently arrested and convicted of gross indecency, being sentenced to two years' hard labour. The court transcriptions are a testament to Wilde's courage and unfailing, unflappable wit. In the reading of letters between Wilde and Bosey, it was in the courtroom that the euphemism for homosexuality, the love that dare not speak its name, was coined. When questioned about its meaning, Wilde said, It is that deep spiritual affection that is as pure as it is perfect. It dictates and pervades great works of art. It is beautiful, it is fine, it is the noblest form of affection. The world mocks at it and sometimes puts one in the pillory for it. The conviction left Wilde publicly disgraced and physically weakened and upon his release from prison in 1897 he sailed immediately to France. He never returned to Britain. Wilde hoped to continue writing when he was in France but had no success. His only work after his time in prison was the Ballad of Reading Jail. Although friends visited him in France, Wilde, a once joyful and exuberant man, began to decline in health. His last years were spent in isolation, poverty and alcoholism. Oscar Wilde died in Paris on November 30th, 1900, at age 46, of acute meningitis caused by an ear infection. His last words are reported to be, My wallpaper and I are fighting a duel to the death. One or the other of us has got to go. On the 31st of January 2017, the Queen signed the Police and Crime Act. The law posthumously pardoned over 50,000 historic convictions of gross indecency and other charges related to homosexual acts. Among the men to be pardoned was Oscar Wilde. More than 100 years after his death, Wilde's writing and plays continue to inspire and entertain readers and audiences. His theatrical comedies are some of the most often revived works in both the amateur and professional theatre. His legacy has endured as both a brilliant playwright and as a man whose steadfast belief in his own sexuality led to his martyrdom and public disgrace. In his powerful, unsent letter, De Profundis, which he wrote whilst in prison, Wilde's voice resonates as powerfully as ever, providing comfort and hope in the face of injustice and ignorance. To regret one's own experiences is to arrest one's own development. To deny one's own experiences is to put a lie into the lips of one's own life. It is no less than a denial of the soul. Thank you for listening to the Amateur of Life and Death podcast. If you'd like to listen to more, make sure you subscribe at podcast.crescent-theatre.co.uk or via Spotify, Google or Apple Podcasts to get the next episode. You can find out more about the Crescent Theatre Birmingham and our upcoming productions, including Lady Windermere's Fan, by visiting www.crescent-theatre.co.uk or by following us on social media. Amateur of Life and Death is a Crescent Theatre production. It's presented by Laura East, John O'Neill and Luke Plimmer, with research by Liz Plumpton. The music is by Brendan Stanley. The podcast is edited by Kevin Middleton.